This episode contains explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Saigon. Still only in Saigon. Every time I think I'm gonna wake up back in the jungle. When I was home after my first tour, it was worse. wake up and there'd be nothing. I hardly said a word to my wife until I said yes to a divorce. When I was here, I wanted to be there. When I was there, all I could think of was getting back into the jungle. I'm here a week now. Waiting for a mission. Getting softer. Every minute I stay in this room, I get weaker. And every minute Charlie squats in the bush, he gets stronger. Each time I looked around, the walls moved in a little tighter. Captain Willard is damaged. He is haunted. He is the perfect person, according to the higher-ups, to carry out an important mission. Travel up the Nung River into Cambodia to find Colonel Kurtz, who has gone insane and positioned himself as sort of a cult leader or demigod at a compound deep in the jungle. Willard is to terminate Kurtz, 
with extreme prejudice. Willard meets up with the crew of the patrol boat that will take him upriver. The captain of the boat is chief and his crew is chef, the kid named Mr. Clean, and a big-named surfer named Lance. Soon after, they rendezvous with Colonel Kilgore, a sadistic surfing enthusiast who wears a Union General's hat, and after realizing that Lance is a big-time surfer, agrees to escort the boat and its crew to the mouth of the river, which is currently being held by the Viet Cong, something Kilgore does using his own style of helicopter attack. Put on war up, make it loud, and the Romeo Fox shall we dance?
Good team. Outstanding. Get your case of beer for that one. Well done. Once a 20 Mike Mike Vulcan right along those tree lines. The boat is let down, and while the napalm rains down on Charlie, Kilgore addresses the situation. Willard gathers the crew and they head upriver. A quick expedition that Willard and Chef have into the jungle leads to a surprise encounter with a tiger that freaks Chef out. Back on the boat, Willard reads more about Kurtz and begins to admire the colonel's tenacity, as well as his achievements. The crew refuels at a station in the jungle where a USO show featuring Playboy Playmates takes place. The girls dance around and shake it and the crowd becomes unruly, ending with the girls being escorted from the outpost in a helicopter. 
Once the crew has refueled and is back on the boat, Willard reads some more about Kurtz, looking specifically at the crime Kurtz is wanted for, which is the assassination of some South Vietnamese officials. The boat then comes upon what seems like an inconspicuous and ordinary fishing boat. Chief pulls it over and has the crew do a routine inspection, much to Willard's chagrin as he wants to continue upriver. Chef checks the boat's contents and when a woman runs for a container on the boat, Mr. Clean panics and begins firing. Almost all aboard are killed and Chef is visibly upset, especially when he reveals that the woman was not going for weapons, but for a puppy. There is one woman left alive and they want to take her as a hostage. Willard shoots her and tells the crew, I told you not to stop, now let's go. The boat reaches the Dolong Bridge, which is the last outpost before Cambodia. There is a chaotic fight going on and the crew discovers that there is no CO at the bridge. Willard then receives word from dispatch that six months prior someone else had been sent upriver to carry out Willard's mission and it is believed he stayed with Kurtz. The boat's crew receive letters from home and reads them. Lance pops a purple flare, and this gets noted by the enemy, who begins attacking. Mr. Clean is killed, and then sometime later, when they are attacked by arrows and spears, so is Chief. The river becomes littered with bodies and skulls, and the boat pulls into Kurtz's compound, where the men who had been sent to kill him and had joined him greet him as do several hundred natives and an American photojournalist. Written on a rock is the phrase, our motto, Apocalypse Now. Willard and Lance head into the compound, telling Chef to stay behind and order an airstrike if they don't return. Willard is captured and put in a cage where it seems that Lance is being drawn into the spirit surrounding Kurtz and his people. Willard is starved and tortured for several days and at one point is given Chef's severed head. Kurtz then releases him from the cage and talks to him. They say why, Willard. Why they want to terminate my command. I was sent on a classified mission, sir. No longer classified. they tell you? They told me that you had gone totally insane. And uh, that your methods were unsound. Are my methods unsound? I don't see any method at all. I expected someone like you. What did you expect? 
assassin. I'm a soldier. You're neither. You're an errand boy. Sent by grocery clerks. Willard heads back to his boat, and that night re-enters the compound, killing Kurtz while the people in the camp ceremoniously slaughter a water buffalo. TBR Street Gang, this is Bob Mighty, over. TBR Street Gang, this is Bob Mighty, standing by, over. TBR Street Gang, this is Bob Mighty, standing by, how do you copy? They were gonna make me a major for this. And I wasn't even in their fucking army anymore. Everybody wanted me to do it. Him most of all. I felt like he was up there, waiting for me to take the pain away. He just wanted to go out like a soldier, standing up. Not like some poor, wasted, rag-ass renegade. Even the jungle wanted him dead. And that's who he really took his orders from anyway.
Willard leaves the temple holding the bloody machete that he used to kill Kurtz. Seeing this, everyone in the camp bows to him. He drops the machete, grabs Lance, and walks back to the boat. He leaves with Kurtz's words echoing in his head. Apocalypse Now is released on August 15, 1979, and opened in third place, ultimately earning $78.7 million. It was the fourth highest grossing movie at the box office. In the top 10 for 1979 in order were Kramer vs. Kramer, The Amityville Horror, Rocky II, Apocalypse Now, Star Trek, The Motion Picture, Alien, 10, The Jerk, Moonraker, and The Muppet Movie. But Apocalypse Now's story goes back much further than its August 1979 release, and the making of the film is just as famous as the film itself. One of the best sources for information about the making of the film is the 1991 documentary Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. The director credits on the film are Fax Bear, George Hickenlooper, and Eleanor Coppola, as the two men interviewed Francis Coppola as well as members of the original cast and crew, then edited those interviews together with footage that Eleanor Coppola had shot while on the set of the film back in the 70s, as well as interviews and conversations with her husband that she taped surreptitiously. This was all going to be part of a production diary and a side project of sorts, and then it just became this documentary. The film's genesis, in a sense, goes back to the novel it was based on, which is the novel Hearts of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. A novella that was published in 1899 is the story of a captain named Marlowe, who was set on a mission down the Congo River to find and retrieve a man named Kurtz, who has essentially gone native, or more or less let himself become part of the jungle. Orson Welles, it is noted, tried to make the film back in 1939 after adapting it for his radio program, but the production never got off the ground and Welles went on to make Citizen Kane instead. There was a version of the film made in 1994, I believe, starring John Malkovich. Coppola's adaptation of the novel came about in the late 1960s, during a time when he and a young generation of filmmakers were creating films in a way that is best described as Maverick. The original screenplay was written by John Milius, who would go on to write a number of films and would direct a number as well, most notably Conan the Barbarian and Red Dawn. The original director attached to the project was a young protege of Coppola's named George Lucas, who in 1969 was set to direct and was planning on directing the film in Vietnam. However, no studio would finance the film if it were to be shot in Vietnam, so the project was shelved. Lucas famously went on to direct American Graffiti, which Coppola produced, and then would go on to direct Star Wars. Coppola had success of his own throughout the early 1970s, earning a string of hits and Oscars with The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, and The Conversation. This allowed him to open his own studio in Northern California called American Zotrope, and it also allowed him to raise the money to make Apocalypse Now. According to Peter Biskin's Easy Riders Raging Bulls, when Coppola decided to direct Apocalypse Now himself, Lucas was put out, having felt that the film was a project that he always felt was his to direct. Milius, however, takes Coppola's side in that argument. He says that while Lucas was set up to direct it, it's not like he was integral to the project, that Apocalypse Now really never was going to be made unless Coppola did it himself. And so he headed to the Philippines with Harvey Keitel cast as Willard and Marlon Brando cast as Kurtz, building elaborate sets in the Filipino jungle using cheap labor and striking a deal with the government of then-President Ferdinand Marcos for the use of Filipino army helicopters, a deal that would prove very tough as the helicopters would often be used in fighting against rebel forces. After one week of shooting, Harvey Keitel 
was fired and replaced with Martin Sheen, who plays Willard in the film. Robert Duvall plays Kilgore, and according to Coppola, the scenes where Kilgore's crew attacks the beach to right of the Valkyries by Wagner were logistically some of the hardest he ever, ever filmed. Then, a huge typhoon hit the Philippines, and most of the sets in the film were completely destroyed. Coppola lost more time as a result of the and the production became notorious in the Hollywood trades. Drugs were also plenty on the set, and some of the scenes that were filmed were filmed while some of the principal actors were either high or drunk. Most famously, the opening scene where Willard trashes his hotel room features an incredibly drunk Martin Sheen. He actually cut his hand badly in that scene as well. On March 1st, 1977, Sheen suffered a serious heart attack and shut down production. Coppola was upset that the crew knew about Sheen's heart attack as he was going to try to keep it a secret, and the crew tried to do what they could to film around Sheen's absence, but they can't get much work done. Complicating things even further was that Marlon Brando, who had been difficult to schedule in the first place, hadn't shown up yet. Eleanor, meanwhile, visited with local villagers and filmed some of their rituals, including ritual sacrifices of animals such as caribou and water buffalo, and this will give her husband the inspiration for the end of the film. When Brando finally showed up, he was enormously overweight and he was completely unprepared. Coppola only had a few weeks to shoot with him, and he didn't know what to do with him. In fact, he, he spent a significant amount of time talking to him about how they were going to do their scenes, and in the end, he shot him mostly in the dark, and most of the scenes with Brando in them were Brando just rambling incoherently, although there's at least one amusing outtake. Six, two, take three. What is the bloodlust? Bloodlust. The bloodlust. They say all the men that I've read about, they say that the human animal is the only one that has bloodlust. Killing without purpose. Killing for pleasure. You can see light through this you take the ones that are made for garbage detail you take the others who are made to think but who can't act you take I swallowed a bug there's also a talk of Coppola having gone insane in a sense during the filming an anecdote in Easy Rider's Raging Bulls tells a story of a breakdown that Coppola suffered, where the pressure of the film, as well as the ostentatious lifestyle he'd been living, caught up to him. Coppola's mood swings were getting more erratic. As he put it, we were in the jungle, there were too many of us, we had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little we went insane. Francis was now living in Hidden Valley, a spectacular resort inside an active volcano, smoking lots of dope. Despite a change for the better in the weather, the oppressive heat had broken and dry, cool wind had come up, Francis was in a black humor. Melissa had just left. He was blaming himself for Sheen's heart attack. One evening in the middle of March, Coppola had flown in a chef from Japan to prepare an elaborate meal of Kobe beef. Suddenly he sank to his knees weeping, then had a classic epileptic seizure, banging his head against the wall, thrashing about on the floor, foaming at the mouth. His pilot thrust a belt between his jaws to prevent him from biting his tongue. 
He'd been about to rehearse Linda Carpenter in a scene where she reads tarot cards, and now in his delirium he was convinced that she was a witch, he the devil, the movie evil, and the apocalypse of the title was actually at hand. He swore he had seen the white light, he was going to die. His last request that Lucas finish the picture. Two days later he appeared to be fine, flew in print of one of his favorite movies, Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be To Screen. Eleanor, who was in San Francisco, flew to his side. According to Cindy Wood, who played another bunny and was also staying at Hidden Valley, Coppola asked her to tell his wife about his relationship with Carpenter. She did. Francis and Ellie dis discussed separation or divorce. I was in, like, love triangles beyond my thing, and I almost, and I was tired, and Marty had just had a heart attack, and it was my own money, and I didn't feel good about my relationship with my wife, Francis recalled. But he couldn't bring himself to make the break. I didn't want to lose my children, he said. A lot of men can do that. I was just not the kind of person who could go and wipe out my family like that and do a second family. I will never do that. I, I just can't. He lay at Eleanor's feet, stroking her ankles, moaning, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. March 20th, the one-year anniversary of the beginning of principal photography, came and went unremarked. Sheen recovered surprisingly quickly and was working again by mid-April. In early May, Coppola wrapped. He finally returned to San Francisco in the middle of June 1977 in a BAC-111, a sizable plane about four times the size of a Gulfstream seating 80 that he had wangled from a South American manure millionaire after a 238-day shoot, double that of Jaws, with 250 hours of footage a few weeks after the premiere of Star Wars, which he missed. The budget, which had begun at $13 million, had reached nearly $30 million and was still climbing. Francis had lost nearly 100 pounds. He owed $14 million in overruns. United Artists had sunk $25 million in the film and found it prudent to take out a $15 million insurance policy on his life. If he died, UA would walk away with a million dollar profit. He joked that he was worth more dead than alive. In the end, as you can see, the film ruined, nearly ruined Coppola, both mentally and financially. He did win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. The film was nominated for eight Academy Awards, winning two for Best Score and Best Cinematography. His films after Apocalypse Now are not as noteworthy, and while most people of my generation are familiar with and have a nostalgic love for The Outsiders, most of them are not as impressive and are un un overall underperformed. In the 1990s, his two most notable films were The Godfather Part 3, which while nominated for Best Picture is more infamous than famous, mainly due to the performance of his daughter Sophia in a major role, and the 1992 film Bram Stoker's Dracula. Since then, he has directed a number of films and has also been a successful winemaker. His daughter Sophia has also had a successful career. Martin Sheen has since had a very long and successful career in film and television. Lawrence Fishburne, who was 14 when he played Mr. Clean, has also had a successful film career and can currently be seen as Perry White in Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. Marlon Brando would make a few films since Apocalypse Now, although his eccentricities and personal life, as well as his girth, overshadowed any of his later films, one of which the 1996 version of The Island of Dr. Moreau is another story of an insane film production. Robert Duvall, who played Kilgore, has had a successful award-winning movie career, as did Dennis Hopper, who played the American photojournalist. Sam Bottoms, who played Lance, according to Easy Riders Raging Bulls, 
acquired hooker filming in the Philippines, and he worked steadily in film and television until his death from a brain tumor in 2008. Frederick Forrest, who, who played Chef, has since retired and may be recognizable if you've seen the first season of 21 Jump Street because he played Captain Jenko. The film itself has stood the test of time. It was re-released in 1987 after the success of other Vietnam War movies, such as Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, and an extended version called Apocalypse Now Redux was released in 2001. This version restored 49 minutes to the film. The film is available on DVD and Blu-ray in a complete dossier package, and that includes both versions. Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, is also available on DVD. My first memories of anything that's associated with Apocalypse Now are piecemeal and odd. I remember seeing the film's poster in the video store during the 1980s and thinking it was a cool title for a movie. I remember seeing the clip of Willard emerging from the water with his face painted before he sneaks into the camp to kill Kurtz on a commercial that used to air on WPIX throughout the 80s and 90s as a way to advertise all of the movies they were going to be showing at one point. The film was also used as a punchline on an episode of One Day at a Time that I remember seeing. I also saw a scene, the scene of Kilgore attacking the beach in an episode of Siskel and Ebert where they were kind of talking about best movie moments or something. And then, of course, there's this. I've been waiting 25 years for this moment. I'm sorry, sir. I must have taped over that. But I actually didn't see this film in its entirety until college when I took a class called Fiction and Film, which was entirely focused on adaptation. Our first paper assignment was to do a direct comparison of a work of literature and its film adaptation. And while I never read Heart of Darkness, I decided to check it out of my college's library and read it in order to compare it to Apocalypse Now, which I sat down and watched one night in my dorm room with my roommate Dennis, who was in ROTC, and he said he'd probably sit around for a little bit in the movie, and then he wound up watching the whole thing, and I swear he kind of had this crazy look in his eyes like he was going to go full Kurtz if we weren't all careful when we were done with it. But the paper I wrote was titled An Evaluation of Apocalypse Now as a Substantial Version of Heart of Darkness, and it's eight pages long. I reread it, and I saw a lot of typical attempt at sounding, quote, intelligent for the sake of an academic paper, and I'm not going to read the entire thing here because I want to keep what few listeners I have. But here is what I said in my final evaluation of the film as an adaptation of the book when I read it and I saw it back in 1998. Coppola's translation of Heart of Darkness is successful because it captures the main themes that compose the essence of Conrad's story. Marlowe's trip down the river is also a trip into his own being and a literal depiction of how society and civilization fade away as he discovers a man engulfed by the primal urges that lie within. Captain Willard's journey is the same and vividly illustrated, and the message of the necessity of civilization is reiterated strongly in Apocalypse Now. Willard's mission is simple. The army wants him to travel into the jungle and terminate Colonel Kurtz with extreme prejudice. Kurtz has strayed from the standards of the army and his society, so he must be done away with. As Willard begins the story, he is a muddled mess, drunk and trashing a hotel room, and even as the mission begins, still trying to comprehend the Vietnam War, even though he mentions that he has served there for a while, and even returned home at one point. 
However, as the journey into Vietnam and Cambodia continues and Willard learns more about Kurtz through his dossier, he begins to understand Kurtz more and more and becomes more focused. He, his voiceovers become less observant about the war or the young GIs he is traveling with on a PT boat, and more about what made Kurtz the terror he has become. This is comparable to the curiosity that Marlowe experiences while traveling to Africa. Several cinematic aspects of Apocalypse Now also help represent Willard's descent into darkness. One of his first encounters is with Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore, played by Robert Duvall, who fully represents the civilized world's mechanized, organized nature. He is very mighty, wearing an old Civil War hat and expressing his enjoyment of surfing and music. His most notable line, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, shows how civilization molds human instinct into an acceptable fashion. Napalm is a chemical used to burn trees during warfare, a very effective weapon that is deployed during an air raid highlighted by Kilgore's deliberate playing of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries over a helicopter PA. This sequence takes place at the mouth of the river before Willard boards the PT boat that takes him on his journey. Once he begins that journey, he sees burned out husks of American helicopters, witnesses a chaotic night raid on the bridge that marks the Vietnam-Cambodia border, and in a reflection of Conrad is shot at from the trees by hundreds and hundreds of arrows. His obstacles are becoming more and more primitive, yet at the same time they are much more dangerous. The final realization of Coppola's success comes in the film's closing moments, when Willard kills Kurtz. Canby notes that the film, quote, fails to completely establish any connection whatsoever between the hunter and the hunted. However, this connection is evident during Kurtz's brutal death. Willard's last lines of narration are, I felt like he was up there, waiting for me to take the pain away. He just wanted to go out like a soldier, standing up not like some poor, wasted, rag-ass renegade. Even the jungle wanted him dead. That's who he really took his orders from anyway. Marlowe does not kill Kurtz in Hearts of Darkness. Kurtz dies of disease brought on by the jungle. The jungle has rejected Colonel Kurtz and allows Willard to kill him, a death performed as a backdrop to a primitive sacrificial ceremony. Additionally, every shot of Kurtz up until this point had been in the shadows and darkness. Coppola also used extreme close-ups of Marlon Brando's face to demonstrate that he had been within the darkness and had given him some power. However, Willard now understands Kurtz and understands that he must die. From this point on, the camera frames Kurtz in a series of long shots coinciding with a close-up of Willard's face emerging from the river covered in mud, a sort of war paint. Willard is shown in the shadows, carries a machete, and literally butchers Kurtz, a brutal beating within the savagery that the colonel had surrounded him. There are a few moments in silence and then Brando's final lines, the horror, the horror, an exact transcription of Kurtz's dying breath in Heart of Darkness. As Willard points his boat away from Kurtz's camp, there is a close-up of his face, which dissolves among a black sky and a Buddhist statue. Once again, Kurtz's words are heard as a voiceover, reflecting the final lines of Conrad's novel. The offing was barred by a black bank of clouds, and the tranquil waterway leading to the uttermost ends of the earth flowed somber under an overcast sky, seemed to lead into the heart of an immense darkness. Willard's face dissolving amongst the smoke illustrates that he knows what Kurtz saw, and completes Coppola's rendering of Heart of Darkness, never once losing sight of its impact. See, so yeah, I was an intelligent student. I also got, I got like an A or an A minus in the class. So I was doing something right. Anyway, prior to watching the film for this episode, I hadn't watched it all the way through in at least a decade, not since I purchased it on DVD back in 2000 or 2001. I've actually never seen Apocalypse Now Redux, 
Maybe one day I'll, I'll sit down and watch it. But for the purposes of this episode, I just wanted to review the original version. And I also wanted to watch and review uh, Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, which is a documentary I've been wanting to watch for a number of years. And I finally had the opportunity to see because I still have a Netflix DVD account. The film itself is incredibly surreal. It constantly seems to have a dreamlike quality throughout, especially as Willard goes from his briefing, where he gets his mission orders, all the way to the jungle to find Kurtz at the end. Despite the over-the-top opening, Martin Sheen plays the role of Willard incredibly well, displaying a look of, at times, where he seems to be stuck in the world of the Vietnam War. And as he heads deeper into his mission, he's getting more and more sucked into the world of Kurtz. Of course, this is the second film I've covered where Sheen is the lead character, and therefore, I think I have to include this. Somebody once wrote, hell is the impossibility of reason. That's what this place feels like, hell. I hate it already, and it's only been a few hours. I'm so tired. We get up at five. At first, I thought they'd handed me the wrong dossier. I couldn't believe they wanted this man dead. Third generation West Point, top of his class, Korea. Airborne, about a thousand decorations, etc., etc. I love you in Wall Street! But back to the film, the parallels between Kurtz and Willard are obvious throughout. There seems to be a constant struggle of dark versus light and rational versus irrational. Coppola lays the psychology on very thick and the symbolism as well, just as Kubrick did with an animal mother in full metal jacket. Coppola has Robert Duvall embody that notion of masculinity with Kilgore, a scene that's highly praised and, well, deserves the praise because it's technically excellent. The beach attack scene is beautifully shot, and Coppola actually gives it plenty of time to develop before the first shots are fired. He builds a lot of tension with the shots of choppers, soldiers, and villagers, as well as the music before unleashing a scene that really is a full sheer brutality. In the hands of a lesser director, like a Roland Emmerich or a Michael Bay, or as part of a PG-13 movie, this would be gratuitous violence that really has no point except to look cool. Instead, you can really analyze the scene for its contemplation of the brutality of war, war's connection to human aggression, and whether or not we are just as savage as those whom we label savages because their methods may be more primitive. Sheen's voiceovers work very well, too, as they serve to flesh out Kurtz's character and simultaneously build his mystery. They slow down the pace of the film a little, but it works in order to give us a breather between all of the battles and weird surrealness going on, and as they go further and further into the jungle, Coppola seems to go for more of a horror tone to the film, which works as well. Brando's presence helps, although knowing what went on behind the scenes with Brando makes the scenes a bit more odd. They're surreal. He's villainous and sinister, but he's more of a slow burn. It's not as maniacal as, say, like, I don't know, Cesar Romero's Joker or something like that. Speaking of the story behind the movie, this is one of those times where knowing about the story behind the movie makes me appreciate the movie even more. Hearts of Darkness is a documentary. It details the film's production very well, but more importantly, documents Coppola's hubris, which drives the entire film from beginning to end. Coppola rambles on and on, and in many of the conversations that Eleanor recorded and many of the cases, he has these manic episodes that involve him coming up with crazy ideas coupled by long stretches of depression, which include him even threatening to commit suicide. Coppola... When he was winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes, famously said that this film isn't about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. Having read quite a bit about Vietnam at this point, as well as having seen a number of films, I do beg to differ. I know that sounds pretentious as hell, but it's certainly a good film. I don't think it's more... 
I think it's more a great film about the nature of war and the nature of humanity when it comes to human aggression than that happens to be set in the Vietnam War than it is about the Vietnam War. And honestly, that's what makes the film work, because it's also reflective of American society's feelings on the war at the time, or at least a particular segment of American society. I personally recommend watching both the film and the making of documentary for those reasons, and for reasons beyond that. After all, it's simply a classic piece of 1970s filmmaking, and American filmmaking at that. <laughs>